0: Welcome to the Living Jewishly Podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot I'm And I'm Rabbi Yossi Saperman. And I'm Rabbi Blue. We talk about Judaism, and we talk about living, and we talk about everything in between. And what it means to be Jewish and human in today's world. Judaism is not nearly as boring as I thought it was. We're not selling you on Judaism. We're not selling you on living. We're just trying to get you inside of our brains, the way we think about stuff. And the way we feel about stuff. And we'll try to be as real as possible. By getting you into our Jewish brain, you'll argue a lot, you'll disagree, you'll love, you'll eat, you'll have a really good time, you'll learn a lot of things, and you know what? You might actually find that all those 3,000 years have been worth it. And maybe we'll even come out being better people for it. When Jews sit down at their Seder tables on Passover— The atmosphere is usually a mixture of fun and family, with the time-honored rituals of matzah, mara, and the four cups of wine taking up a preeminent position. But the story that's being narrated, that of the triumph of the Exodus, has a dark side that's worth exploring. The biblical God, who could presumably extricate the Israelites from Egypt in one fell swoop, prolongs matters through ten plagues, meant to establish once and for all divine dominance over the Egyptian pharaoh And any other pretenders to supreme authority. The climactic plague is that of the killing of every last firstborn of Egypt, as the Torah says, from the firstborn of Pharaoh to that of the handmaid and the prisoner. Is this display really necessary? Does this destruction somehow raise questions about the morality of God and the arbitrariness of how we experience divine justice? I'm Elliot Malamut, and this is What Would You Do, a monthly podcast about ethics in the modern world. In this episode, I explored whether God can be immoral and whether we need to pay heed to such a God with Rabbi Dr. Eugene Korn. Rabbi Korn lives in Jerusalem and was formerly Academic Director of the Center for Jewish-Christian Understanding and Cooperation in Jerusalem. An ordained rabbi, Eugene also holds a Ph.D. in Moral Philosophy from Columbia University. His research interests include Jewish-Christian relations, Jewish ethics, and Jewish law, and his latest book, to Be a Holy People, Jewish Tradition and Ethical Values, was published last year. Eugene, one of the most famous narratives in all of Jewish history occurs in the book of Exodus, which narrates the final plague which descends upon Egypt, in which God delivers and kills every last Egyptian firstborn. The verse tells us from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the female slave who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the livestock. I'd like to begin by asking you, how should a modern person relate to this story? The Torah offers it without any seeming moral judgment or criticism, and the implication is that God is qualified and justified in whatever God does. But we're struck by the enormous loss of life and question whether all of those lives need to be sacrificed to demonstrate God's power. Why should an Egyptian slave's firstborn die, for example? Why does God have to kill so many Egyptians? Can't God liberate the Israelites without all of this killing?
1: Yes, well, I I think as a modern person, as a responsible modern person, we need to approach the text with caution and critically, because there's a number of different layers here that we have to relate to. Firstly, I, as a modern person, understand that I, I think the message in the in the Torah and the Bible here is one of an attempt at, at justice. That is, that the Egyptians got what they deserved because they killed the firstborn of the Jewish people and therefore they suffer a similar punishment. Now, of course, it wasn't the firstborn of the Egyptians who were killing the Jewish people. It was Paro and Paro's army or Paro's court. So that is a deep moral problem that we need to grapple with. And that's, I guess, what's really behind your question here. I would say this, that, that I, as a modern person, view this as a kind of a naturalistic narrative. That is to say, I don't I don't view it that God is up in the heaven somewhere striking down the Egyptians with punishment or with plagues. But rather, it's a kind of the long arc of historical justice. That is, the Egyptians, because they committed these gross immoralities of killing people, of enslaving people, ultimately justice was done in history, and that that slave regime, and that murderous regime couldn't survive. Now, of course, the Bible doesn't put it that way, but I think as a modern person with a moral sensibility, that's a good way to approach it. Secondly, I don't know that I agree that we have to immediately assent to whatever God does seems to be moral or justified. I mean, let's just compare this narrative with the narrative in Genesis where God comes to Abraham and he says that he's going to destroy the whole cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham doesn't say, well, God, you can do whatever you want, but he says, God, in uh, paraphrasing Abraham, says, God, you can't do whatever you want. That is, you, if you as the ruler of the universe, and as the master of the laws of the universe, you have to act with a sense of justice, and therefore you're not free to do whatever you want. You can't kill righteous people or punish righteous people the way you punish innocent people. So there is this biblical text, which I think gives us a precedent, however much of a believer you are in the inerrancy and the divinity of the biblical text. You know, it does give a certain serious message here that we're allowed to question God and God's behavior, and that the God of Israel or the God of the Bible, you know, is confined to, to actions within the bounds of morality and command cannot commit immorality. Now, I think one important aspect of of both stories is that nowhere in either story does the Bible tell us human beings that we have to act in this way because God acted in this way. That is, it's a, it's a philosophical problem of, about why the firstborn are killed in Egypt. But in a certain sense, we can say we don't understand it. And it's certainly inconsistent with a moral God. But in no way, shape, or form of this, the Bible tell us that we're supposed to behave similarly. There's no commandment that we have to behave the way God, that our morality or our behavior should conform to what God did during the Exodus. And I would say the Midrash kind of takes up this, this problem because there is a, a religious conception and a, a legal command to imitate God. Okay. But the ancient rabbis of the Talmudic rabbis Understood that this, there's a serious downside to this, right? Because God is a punitive in the Bible, He's a punitive God. He's a whirlwind. He destroys. This is just one example of the, the case of the Egyptian first It's just one example. So are we supposed to follow God? These ways of God? And the Midrash says no. So we're not allowed, you know, to, to imitate God's punitive behavior because we don't really know how much punishment is justified. And punishment is usually destructive. And therefore, we're not allowed to imitate those attributes of God. What we are supposed to imitate are the uh, attributes of Thessalon and Rathamim, that is loving kindness and doing constructive things for people. Because there, even if you go overboard, you know, it's only to the good. So I think uh, he and the ancient rabbis understood the, the underlying moral problem here, and that when we imitate God, we're only supposed to imitate God's constructive and loving attributes. Not his punitive attributes
0: I just wonder how we split off the divine in that way you know so let's say let's say we go with that direction that we imitate that which we find amenable and we don't imitate that which we find offensive but doesn't it place God under a kind of microscope here where this is the God who after all is the commanding presence in the in the Bible and the commanding presence for Jews in terms of giving them mitzvot to follow and a way of life that's obligatory. Should I be following the lead of this God if I find that God objectionable in so many moral ways?
1: Well, I, I think that that's, in fact, the position of Abraham, because Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, he found what God was about, God's plan, what he was about to do, what it was about to do, more of the objectionable and and held God's feet to the Father. And, and ultimately, God acceded to that demand. Uh, In effect, he told Abraham, yes, I can't be God and and act immorally. So there are certain even though God is absolute, one could say, there are, at least in in terms of the Jewish conception of God, there are certain constraints upon what God, qua God, is allowed to do or should do. Now, interestingly, this is a major theological debate because the the position of the Midrash and and how Jews understood stoma and Amorov is in direct conflict but certainly Christian interpretations of the Ak- Akedah Yitzchak, the sacrifice of Isaac. I mean, one of the Tertullian and later Kierkegaard in the Christian theological tradition read the text of the Akedah and said the message here is that we're, we must do whatever God commands, even if it's immoral, even if it's violent, you know, even if it makes us murderers. You know, Abraham became a knight of faith or, or a theological hero because he was willing to be a murderer rather than to disobey God. Uh, that was a, a Christian reading of it. I didn't find any similar Christian, uh, Jewish reading of the gets Itzga like that. So the Jewish conception is a kind of paradox. One, in the sense that, that God is absolute and God is infinite. But on the other hand, and this is the important moral point, on the other hand, God cannot be a model of immorality. God, being a moral God, to be so would be to undermine his status as the creator of heaven and earth.
0: What's interesting to me about what you're saying is it makes perfect rational sense from an ethical point of view to sort of veer away from paradigms or precedents that God creates that one feels oneself to be uneasy about. But then I'm thinking about the issue of textual relevance. Like, I'd like you to comment on this kind of paradox involved In any kind of reinterpretation you know like while it's true that a literal interpretation of certain texts like the genocidal ones for instance in the bible exterminating Amalek, exterminating the canaanites and so on if you literally applied those that'd be horrifying so we reinterpret them we kind of defang them as it were and you're left then with the problem of really why does this matter at all to modern readers like if they're so disturbing as to require a full-scale reinterpretation now, what's their value in the first place? You cited Akedat Yitzchak, which I've, I've often wondered about that. Like, why is this here? Surely, it's not here for me to go out and kill my child. And so, th- the question is, how can these ancient texts be spiritually and emotionally relevant for modern people? And can they be ethically salvaged to be useful without actually changing what they really say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's
1: a really good set of questions, and I don't think there are any real silver bullets here, but I, I thought a lot about this. I mean, the classic rabbinic interpretations or the Talmudic interpretations and the later medieval Jewish commentators' interpretations of the whole commandment to kill the Amalek and the, the Canaanite tribes. Basically, I think there was a deep feeling of unease going way, way back to the time of the Talmud about these commandments. That's precisely why the normative interpretation or that these commandments are, are basically, they might have been correct in history, in the biblical era, but in the post-biblical era, they're just theory because the Talmudic discussion says that, well, you know, it's true that the Bible says we're, we're obligated to kill the Canaanites and the Amalekites. However, what happened historically was that these nations became commingled, that when Sancheirov conquered the nations, he forced them to intermarry. And therefore, it's impossible to know who's a pure Amalekite or Canaanite stock. Hence, the commandment is there on the books, but we should never act on them. So it became non operative. So you could say, well, if it's non operative, then what's the point of the whole text? Why should the text be there? Now, I'll get to that question. But an interesting thing happened a thousand years, close to a thousand years after the Talmud, let's say 800 years after the Talmud, Maimonides understood it wasn't enough. Something to render these commandments non-operative because there was a deep theological problem that still existed. And the deep theological problem was, yes, we understand that Jews should not act on these commandments, but the commandments themselves seem to be immoral. How could God command something immoral? Namely, how could God command the genocide? That's really what it is. I mean, if we strip away all of the apologetics if we're just honest about it, your god is commanding the genocide of the Amalekite and Canaanite tribes. So Maimonides understood this is a deep problem. Because Maimonides, you know, maybe he he, he certainly read the story of Stominamora, and, and he said a Mishpat. the god the god of all the earth has to act and command with justice. So how could he even command something that's immoral even if it's not implemented? So Maimonides really reinterpreted the whole text. He said the text is not about who's genetically an Amalekite. Because even if an Amalekite or a Canaanite is willing to make peace with the Jewish people, then he's no longer in the legal category of an Amalekite and a Canaanite. And all these commands don't pertain to this peaceful Amalekite or Canaanite, independent of whatever the genealogy is. So what Maimonides achieved through his kind of very skillful and creative reinterpretation of the text was that the commandment to kill somebody is dependent upon their behavior. It's not dependent upon their their genealogy or their race or who their parents were. So in a certain sense, Maimonides moralized the commandment and he was willing to depart from the literal meaning of the commandment because he understood that the God, the commanding God of the Bible and the commanding God for the Jewish people, has to adhere to the the boundaries of morality. So now we get back to your question. If that's the case, then what's the purpose of the commandment at all? Why should it be there? I mean it it's rendered it's rendered inoperative and it's reinterpreted completely. So what's the gain? Why should it be there? And I've often thought about this. And I think of the lessons here. And what something that you can infer is the Bible wanted us to be upset by this. He wanted it wanted us to think about the problematics of religion being in the service of immorality. It wanted us to to struggle with this idea that there could be a God who could demand that people kill others who are innocent. And therefore, if the commandment weren't there, we might not ever think about this problem. But the commandment is there, and the texts are there, and the narratives are there. And I think it's really for the purpose of us grappling and struggling with this whole issue. Now, we know that it's important to struggle with this issue because the history of religion, and particularly in modern times, you don't have to go to the history, even present moment in history, is that we find religious fanatics and religious extremists who really believe that God is telling them to kill. You know, that's one of the great tragedies of the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, is that we have these fanatics and fundamentalists who believe that God has told to tell them to kill, and there's no uh, problem with that, and therefore they fly airplanes into twin towers, you know, or they behead people who differ theologically from them. So I think one of the salutary lessons of of these problematic texts are that we need to struggle with it, and we don't have to be people who who create the world ex nihilo. That is, at least in in, in the Jewish tradition of interpretation and reinterpretation and commentary, you know, we have a very, very good precedence for reinterpreting the text so that, in a certain sense, we moralize the text. That's true in the Talmud, it's true in the Midrash, and it's true in many of the classic biblical commentators, and even amongst the the balayalafah, that is, the legal authorities. And it's interesting about this text of the, the, how do you conduct war? Is it should we today in the 21st century, should Jews today, should the Israeli army today conduct war according to the ground rules of what's written in Deuteronomy about the Canaanites and the Midianites and the Amalekites? So one of the rabbis who actually had the experience of war and who was in battle and understood these issues was Rabbi Goran Rabbi Gorin was the chaplain for the Israeli defense forces, and he wrote, Numerous books on how Jews should prosecute war and how they should conduct themselves in war, and he was a very orthodox man, committed to the t- Bible, committed to the to Jewish law, and yet he said, "God forbid that Jews today conduct war according to the rules that are laid down in Deuteronomy." So you have, I think, this very healthy tradition which says that it may have been true at one period of time. Maimonides didn't believe uh, this immoral command existed in any period of time. But even if you accept that that was the case in biblical times, the lesson, that it had, according to Rogorin, is that that was true in biblical times that we can't do that today. God forbid, he said, you know, which uh, is self-paradoxical, he's saying, God forbid that we should obey God's text. You know, but that was his his position. And you can't say that often enough, given the fact that religion today is, leads to so much violence.
0: I mean, there's there's really radical implications from what you're saying. You have a wonderful quote that leads off chapter eight of your book. Without believing in God, I would never have had the power to do this. So that's a great quote. And if you don't have the context, you you might you might think you you say this very aptly. You could be describing a very positive and benevolent kind of context. Coe well bin whispered been Mother Teresa, about her saintly work with the poor in India. But as you point out, it was in fact said by Yigal Amir at his 1996 trial for the assassination of Prime Minister Rabin. And I found the quote very intriguing because it reminds us of the dangers inherent in any religious morality, like acts done on the basis of morality which come from God. We both know that the phrase comes from God really means that a human being is telling me that God has spoken to him or her, and it's now up to me to believe that account. So look, Eugene, if you told me that God spoke to you last night, that a divine figure appeared in your apartment and spoke to you, and no, so the thing is, I'm sorry to say I wouldn't believe you, but I think even that you were hallucinating. But if the result of your experience with that divine being was that you decided to increase your charitable giving, I might think of you as a bit loony, but I'd be happy with the outcome. The trouble starts when human beings claim to be doing acts of violence in the name of God, that God has literally told them to kill so-and-so or even a whole group. And you alluded to that before when you talked about the Twin Towers and and other acts of violence and modernity based on religious imperatives that the perpetrator believes they're carrying out. The thing for me, though, is that, and I tried to talk about this before, can we split off... The parts of the Torah that we find morally offensive, given that the source of that moral offense is also the source telling us to do normative religious practices in Judaism. We do those things based on imperatives from the Torah through the prophecy of Moshe, at least in the traditional account. But what happens when those prophetic communications result in violent acts? I guess to put it plainly, how can I trust Abraham or Moshe, even when they command nice things to me, like love your neighbor, when in other instances they report that they have to kill as a result of their prophetic experience. Like, doesn't that call into question the very underpinning of a prophetic religion like Judaism? If Yigal Amir came to me one day and said, I think it's important for you to give charity, I don't think I'd give his idea much credence because I'm really thinking about all the terrible things that he's done.
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, that's really, you know, you put your finger on a real dark side of religion because once we say it came from God, it becomes absolute. And again, you know, one, one, theological strain is to say, then we have to suspend our moral judgment and just do whatever God commands. Now, just in terms of practice, I, as a religious Jew, understand that there's no such thing as a direct, clear revelation from God to me in February of 2022. That is, the rabbinic tradition said that after uh, the destruction of the temple, You know, there really was no prophecy. And anybody who claims to hear God's voice directly, you know, is either a child or a fool. So I gather that we don't want to be in either of those two categories. So I think just in principle, I think what the rabbis did, I think, was a very healthy move. They said, we have this authoritative and revelation at one time occurred at Sinai, But post the temple era, you can't claim any kind of direct revelation any longer. Normative religious behavior is contained in a set of laws. And that's what governs our behavior. And because the Torah is no longer in heaven, the Torah or religious instruction is damn near on earth. And I you know, I've thought I, I'm sure that I don't know if Igil Amir thought that God came to him and said he should commit this assassination or was the rabbis. In fact he he did testify at the trial that his rabbinic constructors really were egging him on to do the assassination. So I would say this. If you go to sleep one night and you hear a voice, and you think it's a devoid voice and it says you should kill an innocent person, you need to get your hearing checked because it's not God who's talking. It's Malaf. It's it's an idol who's talking. It's a voice that's talking. It's not God. And in principle, according to normative Judaism, God can come and tell you these things. Now, the rabbis can come and tell you these things, in which case you really have to carefully consider whether these rabbis are speaking something that you consider to be godly or not. In other words, I don't think that a responsible religious person today can get away from exercising his own moral judgment. There's just some things that are off limits to a legitimate religion that is supposed to have divine authority to it, And the divine authority is the creator of heaven and earth, who's a just God, who's not a moral God. So I know a lot of people, you know, there was a famous book written by Eric Fromm called Escape from Freedom and his thesis. And and he wrote it after the second world war and the phenomenon of Nazism and communism and totalitarianism. And his thesis was that there's something in the human personality that wants to get away from making decisions. So you're relying on authorities. You re- rely on dictators and that's an escape from freedom because it kind of, it's a very heavy weight to be responsible for your own life and to make your own decisions. So there's sort of a kind of a natural inclination to just escape authority and uh, escape responsibility and pin whatever you do out an authority, religious or otherwise. Uh, that's really there. And I think you see a lot of that in religious circles. But the real notion, I think uh, that the deepest thrust of these rabbinic texts that are some of the biblical texts are that if God is moral, then you need to exercise your moral judgment and you can contradict certain fundamental rules of morality, namely you're not allowed to kill an innocent person, even though there appear to be certain precedents in the in the Bible that does that. But today all of that is is off limits. It's not an easy way to go. And it is it is a bit radical, I agree with you, Elliot, that this is not a conventional Way of understanding religion, but I think it is the responsible way of understanding religion, and to to lead a mature and intellectually honest and morally responsible religious life.
0: I'm wondering, Eugene, if you have your own sort of protocol—not protocol, but how do you parse out the difference between a person individually deciding that X, Y, or Z in the Torah is immoral, and how would we keep a kind of communal coherence after that? What I mean is as follows: so you're advocating for the idea that people have a legitimate right to push back against things that they see emerging from a divine-based religion as unethical or immoral. The question then becomes, how far can we take this and whether it would lead to a kind of chaos within religious traditions? And I'm sure you're aware of all the sort of line items in contemporary life where people are pushing back against traditional Jewish morality, whether it's gender or sexual orientation or you know there's a whole long list where people say you know this this Torah it's it's archaic it doesn't it, it insults me it doesn't respect my autonomy my dignity my choices and so on so if we use the paradigm that you're talking about it would seem to me that a lot of people could come up with in a lot of instances and say I think Judaism has just missed it and so the the I think the traditional end of the Orthodox community would push back against that, right? They would say that such people uh, have simply put themselves ahead of the divine, but a more progressive look would give those voices, I think, a good deal of play. My question to you is, how do we balance it off, right? How do we balance off the individual's feeling that the Torah is not moral in any given case? If that that really ensues to its last implication— we could have a million Jews doing a million different things.
1: Well, I'm not sure we, today, we don't have a million Jews doing a million different things. <laughs> but, you know, that's not to say that's, that's something that's desirable. You know, I think these are the real serious questions, Elliot. The other theoretical questions about God killing firstborn and about genocide against the Amalekites, they're philosophical and theological questions that don't affect real life today, at least, you know, if you don't meet an Amalekite. But the, the questions about equality and how we deal with people who I would say that the relig- our religious tradition has always marginalized in the past and, th- and therefore shortchanged them and not treating them with great sensitivity or sometimes unjustly, and I'm thinking about women to a great degree, and I'm an Orthodox rabbi, you know, but I think honesty compels us to admit that the rabbinic tradition by the lachic tradition jewish legal tradition you know has is really centered around men and it's met one man talking to another man about how the world is and sometimes one man talking to another man about what women really are you know and that seems to me to be not it's not only uh unmodern but it seems to me to be morally very flawed you know and l- let me just give an example a historical example. In 1917, after the Balfour Declaration, in the Yeshua, in the young Jewish society here in, in Palestine, after the Balfour Declaration, the Jews understood that there was going to be some kind of governing body consisting of Jews who would be making decisions about life here for the Jew, for the Jewish issue. And the question arose whether women should be able to vote for representatives of this governing body, and even more radically, whether women could sit on this governing body. So there was one segment of the religious community, the Mizrahi community here, who really wanted to include women. And they went around to every Ashkenazi rabbi in Palestine, and they couldn't find one Ashkenazi rabbi who would agree that women should be part of this political process. And they even went to Rav Cook. They figured Rav Cook was a philosopher. He read Hegel. He was a Zionist. He was, therefore, he he was sensitive to moderate issues, so they went to him, assuming that he would approve of women's participation in politics. And he came out vehemently against any kind of women's participation in politics. And he said it would even be begida; it would be an act of treason to allow women to participate in the public role. That was in nineteen between nineteen seventeen and nineteen twenty. He published two public letters, and then there was a rabbiusiel from a Eidot and Mizrahi tradition, who was the rabbi, the the Sephardi rabbi in the old city. And he said, wait a second. He said, even though women haven't participated in politics in the past, look at the situation today. And you're going to have this governing body who are going to make decisions that are going to determine the fate of women's lives. He said, aren't women also created in the image of God? And therefore, shouldn't they have a right to speak for themselves? And he said, I know this is unprecedented. This hasn't happened. But based upon this notion of, of the image of God. You know, women should have every right to represent themselves, to have a voice in these faithful decisions. Now, this was a radical move, but he realized the full implications of this notion of a human being having dignity and being created in the image of God. It, it turned out that, that they were, the women were accepted in the political sphere at that time. Now, interesting, this was a question that. That vexed the world at the time. You know, in 1917, when the question was raised in Palestine, there were only five countries that had women's suffrage. So this was not a parochial Jewish question. This was a universal, at least a Western question. And between 1917 and 1925, you know, the majority of Northern European nations, as well as the United States, accepted women's suffrage. But in the Jewish context, in the traditional Jewish context, it was a kind of a radical move. Mm-hmm. And eventually, Ravousiel's position one out, but it it did so slowly. So you have this tension between the tradition and the precedents of the past, which somehow didn't give full humanity to everyone who deserved it. And therefore you had inequality and sometimes injustice. So that's the point that I think that we're at right now. We have this notion, modern people have an Notion of equality, which is really tzedek. It's not a modern notion; it's a biblical notion of tzedek. Tzedek means quality, fairness. It's not only in the judicial sense, but also in the social sense. And therefore, how, what are what are the boundaries of tzedek? That's really what we're grappling today. And as you point out, if you go from uh, uh, a historical precedence to a radically new environment, you have a kind of all authority breaks down, all discipline breaks down, and you have a million Jews. Or, or in Israel, let's say seven million Jews doing seven million different things. Okay, so how do you somehow be faithful to the to the moral ideal and the ideal of tzedek and treating every person as a human being? In rabbinic literature, that's called Chesed and Rachamim. This is what I try to explain in my book. So how do you go from that ideal and yet keep the community together, somehow not throw out the baby with the bathwater? That's a very, that's a slow process, uh, but I think it's a necessary. And by the way, I think Jewish history has shown that that, that that process takes place. I mean, we we somehow managed to root out polygamy and we were able to root out the practice of dut, of uh, servitude, which were biblical practices and it happened. And, uh, and a lot of a lot of our ancient practices, we've evolved beyond, and I think that's where we are now in in, in dealing with not only women, I would say, but mamsayrim. That's a deep, deep moral problem, mamsayrim. Even if you think that, if you agree that adultery and incest, which was the, uh, the mamsayrim, are the product of adultery. And he says, we need to discourage those those behaviors. You can't take it out on the mom's The mom's is innocent. I mean, the, the rabbis understood this. This is a, passages in Talmudic literature. But today in, in Israel, moms have no ability to get married because the, the rabbis will marry them. So this is, I think, a deep injustice that is not only inconsistent with the democratic society, but it requires some kind of moral answer. So it's, it's quite a vexing problem, and if you're a person who has deeply held moral convictions, you know, you're disturbed by this and you want to see a change. Now, the pace of change and how it's changed and who can change it are serious problems, but we can't just say that because God said it or because there's a verse in Leviticus or the rabbis didn't do it in the Middle Ages, we can't do it today. I think there's a certain great noble cause of being committed to this notion of tzedek or quality and fairness and and treating every person as a full with their full humanity, how do we do that? How do we somehow change the real into the ideal? And the answer is it's a, it's a slow process, but it's a necessary process. Now all of this kind of is contrary to a fundamentalistic notion of religion and Halophile. In other words, if you believe in a fundamentalistic God in which God says said this three thousand years ago and therefore you have to do it today. I think you, you're not going to be bothered by these moral problems. Or if you believe in, you know, the absoluteness of halakha and that it never changes, that's what I mean by absolute, that it never changes, you know, then you're faced with a choice. You're faced with the choice of either being faithful to this fundamentalistic or absolutist notion of halakha or being faithful to certain moral ideals. And I think people fall along the whole gamut of where they are in these questions, but I don't see any real contradiction between being faithful to the Torah and to the halakhic process and being faithful to these moral ideals, which are not, by the way, moral ideals from Plato and Aristotle and Immanuel Kant and liberal secularists. These are ideals that come from within Jewish tradition itself. But there's a tension between the two. And how do you somehow reconcile these opposite positions? The answer is very slowly, but to reconcile them we must.
0: For modern people still interested in God-talk and the idea of a human-God connection of any kind, incidents of divine killing in the Torah create a very troubling paradigm to navigate. Do we simply absorb what God does, let God off the hook, so to speak, or do we push back and refuse to accept these acts, thereby placing ourselves in somewhat of an oppositional stance to the biblical narrative? And this speaks to whether our religious worldview can develop and outgrow its biblical origins— and pushes people of faith to transcend biblical Judaism, ironically, the very foundation of the religion, in its first phase. These ironies are not lost on Eugene Korn, who argues for a modern view of Judaism, in which our moral sensibilities are front and center, and bow to no one, not even the deity, who holds the power of life and death. I'm Elliot Malamud, and this has been What Would You Do?, a monthly podcast about ethics in the modern world. To find previous episodes of this series, as well as other podcasts, just subscribe for free to Living Jewishly at www.livingjewishly.org, where you can find details of our amazing course on Judaism in the School of Living Jewishly, and check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Stay safe and take good care of yourselves. Thanks for listening to the Living Jewishly podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps more people like you find our show so that we can continue to grow the Living Jewishly community together. You can find us at livingjewishly.org and on YouTube and Instagram.
1: Living Jewishly is living well with everyone.